Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. With me today is managing editor, Ross John Fortuna. Hi, Ross. Hi, Alex. So you had the opportunity to chat with Steve Blank, co-founder of the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation at Stanford. How'd it go? It went great. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the ways, particularly that the national security establishment needs to modernize and get its management acquisition and technology systems up to par with both the private sector and with other nation states in the broader great power competition in the world system. Yeah, I always enjoy when we get to hear from more of an academic perspective, kind of separated, but directly adjacent to uh, the government. Before we jump into your conversation, is there anything that you want to highlight for our listeners in advance? I think the interesting things that he talked about as someone who works in Silicon Valley or has worked in Silicon Valley and obviously now works at Stanford, which is adjacent to it. He really talked about lean management and the ability to pivot and be quick with the pace of change and steer the proverbial aircraft carrier more quickly because there are a lot of concerns about the Defense Department, I think, broadly and its culture with regards to innovation and bringing in new ideas that the Defense Department admittedly sees and is working on. But as you mentioned, he's worked with the Defense Department and consulted, but he's separate enough on the other coast and far away from the Pentagon, which has a fairly staid culture that change isn't always as accepted as quickly as perhaps is necessary, at least in in Professor Blank's uh, view. Thank you, Ross. With all of that in mind, let's take a listen to your conversation. Steve Blank is an adjunct professor at Stanford and a co-founder of the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation. His latest class at Stanford University is Technology, Innovation, and Great Power Competition, which is providing crucial insight on how tech will and can shape elements of national power. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. The Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation at Stanford. Now, you're a co-founder. This is a novel approach at solving these seemingly unsolvable national security challenges. How is the center training the next generation of NATSEC leaders and innovators? That's a great question. And and probably if you don't mind, I'd start with what was the motivation to start yet again another center and another university and another national security space. And it just dawned on us that uh, sitting at Stanford, we probably had a unique view of uh, what was happening to the DOD and national security uh, ecosystem writ large. Just number one, obviously, we're in the center of technology. And the technologies we were looking at were semiconductors and cyber and biotech and autonomy and drones and, you know, quantum and the list goes on. And, you know, a good chunk of those are being funded and being built in Silicon Valley and a good chunk of those are spun out of Stanford. But the other observation is, but if 
good chunk of them are no longer owned by our FFRDCs that are our federally funded research and development labs or the military labs. And, and a good chunk of, in, in fact, a good chunk of those technologies are now available commercially off the shelf. And even more so, a good chunk of them are coming from China. So number one is the DOD was facing a set of technology threats that for the first time in the history of the DOD, the most advanced technologies in the world were no longer owned by the DOD. It's a big idea. Because number two is our acquisition and research and engineering ecosystem inside the DOD historically has been inward facing. That is, we we talked to our own ecosystem and we were dependent on either our primes or FFRDCs, et cetera, assuming they had the most advanced technology. You know, our contention was that in some cases that's no longer true. So that was one observation. The second observation was that, you know, in Silicon Valley, we tend to be or build things with speed and urgency, taking risks that are different than obviously you take when the life of a warfighter is on the line. Um, but those methodologies, the lean startup and, and design thinking and others, actually are in some cases applicable to actually building and deploying weapon systems. And the U.S. in the past has actually operated with that speed and urgency. And in fact, in actually quite recently, when we had the rapid equipping force in Iraq and Afghanistan and JIDA to defeat IEDs, but we kind of forget all those when we get back inside the buildings with no windows. Um, and so that was number two. So one was tech, the other was those lean methodologies. And the other third at Stanford is much like other great research universities, we had a have a great uh, combination of uh, international policy, but world-class engineering students. And it was that Venn diagram that we thought we could put together to think about these problems. So that's the background to the question you didn't even ask. <laughs> and so when we when we uh, started working on this, uh, uh, Admiral Selby, who at the time headed up the Office of Naval Research, um, was also talking about um, a way to think about the impact of innovation on the Navy, which he called the, the small, the agile, and the many. That is uh, not as a replacement to carriers, but as a way to actually complicate the, an adversary's uh, targeting problems and, and to create opportunities for ourselves to think about thousands or tens of thousands of autonomous or semi-autonomous things being deployed in Indo-PACOM, which by the way, we could talk more. It was great to see that that Secretary Hicks uh, just announced the kind of unveiled essentially DARPA's assault breaker too, and, and now is moving it into, into the Navy and into the DOD. So we thought that would be a uh, maybe a great adjunct for the Navy and others. And so the ONR funded our, our center to start thinking about these things. And so there are two lines of effort inside our center to finally answer questions. One is an education component. We teach a class called Technology, Innovation, and Great Power Competition, which essentially discusses every one of those issues that I've raised, which was not only the impact of commercial technology, but the organizational design of the existing DOD infrastructure and why is it so hard to actually not only acquire, but actually deploy at scale um, systems that aren't built in, you know, by existing primes and why can't we do it with the speed of our adversaries? And then the second is we have kind of research programs by individual students or teams of students who work on problems of interest, uh, most of them uh, in the South China Sea, but in other places as well. So that's what the Gordian Knot Center does. Um, and what was a kind of a, a generally vague interest, I think, in the DOD four, three, four years ago when we started talking about that, um, 
technology and, and great power competition has now become front and center as, as uh, I think everybody now understands that our existing force design um, can't match uh, or will have a difficult time with what our adversaries, particularly China, has uh, has deployed. And we've seen the impact of autonomy and drones and uh, advanced ISR in Ukraine at scale. And I think it's impacting everybody's thinking. So that's what we were thinking about when we started it. I think we've had some world-class lessons on the battlefield uh, uh, to make the point. That gives a lot of good background, a lot of um, sort of fodder for some follow-up. So I'll start with you mentioning the commercial availability of technology. And I know you mentioned the Ukraine war, and there have been a lot of conversations about some of the technology that is commercially available versus not commercially available. What kind of challenge does the availability of technology to everyone, such as it were, how does that pose a challenge to national security strategy, especially regarding uh, the great power competition? Well, I, I think of, well, let's just pick drones. I think most of the photos have been about airborne drones, but, um, you know, the maritime drones have also complicated the, the Russians' ability to maneuver in the Black Sea and, and the sinking of their cruiser, uh, um, the Moscow, I think, uh, certainly opened everybody's eyes about, you know, anti-shipping missiles and their attacks on the, the bridges in Crimea with uh, autonomous uh, maritime assets. Uh, also made people kind of remember, um, gee, the Strait of Hormoz and, and the Iranians have that by a factor of maybe 100 as a capability as well to shut down a movement of oil. Um, and then the potential of what, what could be applied in the South China Sea. So these are not advanced, you know, DOD weapon systems costing tens of millions of dollars each. These are pretty much jury-rigged, mass-produced systems, certainly the Iranian Drones and their Russian clones now are kind of cheap and you know expendable and attributable, etc. Whether they're for uh, ISR or or, or uh, attack drones, and I think that's at least for the army that's changed the nature of, of how to think about um, what the battlefield looks like. I think we're you know also reminded the importance of mines and artillery and tanks. Still, I don't think they're obsolete. I just think their role is changed uh, quite a bit. So number one, um, the visible part is uh, drones and autonomy. I think the less visible part is the integration of uh, ISR into an autonomous system or semi-autonomous system that can rapidly target, uh, take that data and rapidly target or retarget uh, on things that are important or uh, to take out. Um, and, you know, with that, I think we've seen a interesting combination of uh, DOD supply chain to, to Ukraine, but also commercial technology supply chain to Ukraine. It goes without saying, though, I'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd be mistaken if I didn't mention Starlink, which is essentially the, you know, the backbone, which isn't owned, planned, or even thought about by the DOD, right? And, uh, SpaceX has put up now close, I guess they just passed 5,000 satellites orbited and maybe 4,000 plus in operations, but also control the, you know, the line where the Ukrainians can actually get the uh, communications and where SpaceX has drawn a line that says you can't. It's kind of amazing to see that in the hands of a, a private company and a single individual. I'm sure that's sending shutters through the, through and causing a lot of sleepless nights inside the Pentagon. 
I'd love to hear what you think about that with regards to Starlink and the larger conversation around those technologies on the battlefield and in future combats. I mean, essentially, is this something that we're going to see more and more of? Is this the trend that we're going towards where things like that become so de rigueur because we're talking about basically commercially available tech? So, you know, Starlink is an interesting conversation. I mean, the most visible one is to have a single civilian control, essentially the military backbone for communications and 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 the rest on, on the battlefield. I, you know, we kind of look at the Ukrainians and Ukrainians and go, holy cow, how do we how they paint themselves into the situation it was an amazing plus, but also now turning out to be an amazing limitation. Um, and yet we also look at what will happen with the the DOD um, as well in, in equivalent situations. But the but the other lesson here is how was it that a single individual built a communications infrastructure at a fraction of the cost of the DOD, you know, that certainly isn't as resilient or one might use the word gold-plated, but was actually incredibly agile. And the the number of launches coming out of three launch pads in SpaceX are, you know, every four and a half days. Um, Compare that with a national security launch capability in it, and your jaw kind of drops. And I think that brings up a just a different point about if I can take it into the difference between, you know, commercial technology. And this was one of the things when I talked about speed and urgency of the Gordian Knot Center and what we do in Silicon Valley. You know, China operates much like Silicon Valley, and on a good day, the DOD operates like Detroit um, and General Motors. Um, you know, they both make product, but but the speed is different. And the, the problem is, is in the DOD, we tend to confuse um, things that need to be fail safe versus things that are safe to fail. And we build everything that that with the same fail safe mentality that lives are at risk and we need every possible feature and and, and we can't have any failures. And in fact, if you look at SpaceX's Falcon 9, which just launched the seventh crew to the space station, that falls under the fail-safe. You can't afford those rockets to blow up, and you need operational excellence. And those are the things that are going off every four and a half days uh, from those three launch pads. But at the same time, the same company you know, that has this incredible we-can't-take-risk culture also has a, another part of the company with an insane culture in Texas building something called Starship. And their Elon strategy is, if you're not blowing things up, you're not innovating. And if you're not blowing them up on a regular cadence, you're not innovating fast enough. And their, that space is safe to fail. And, and the DOD seems to lack that kind of culture of moving with operational urgency and have a culture of experimentation and risk-taking versus the other culture of everything has to be by the book and the manual and with a 400 page spec and an acquisition process that, you know, is the same for, you know, an off the shelf drone as it is for an aircraft carrier, right? We've been re reforming the PPE for the last 200 years since Washington didn't like the boat he got across the Delaware. Um, you know, the PPE commission is going to come up with the same, you know, next 50 years worth of recommendations when it's pretty obvious to anybody in the commercial world that says, look, 80% of the stuff the DOD buys and uses should be bought with commercial contracting and commercial technology. There is stuff that really does require, you know, a PBE-like process, but not at the rate we do things. And again, 
all this was okay when we were the, you know, the sole superpower for the 20 years and, or we were fighting a non, non-nation states like ISIS and Al Qaeda, or we're now fighting a, a, an adversary in China that's uh, basically not burdened with the legacy systems we've built for the last 75 years. You know, for example, carrier strike groups, you know, made sense for 75 years, you projected power and you defended the sea lanes and you supported amphibious landings by having carriers and their air wings and, you know, Aegis destroyers and the rest accompany them and, you know, tens of billions of dollars per pop for a strike group. That made sense until China built a set of asymmetric weapons that essentially, you know, you don't even have to sink the carrier, you just have to make the flight deck inoperable for them to accomplish what they want to accomplish. That leads into my my next question, specifically about some of these processes, because you've written that uh, the Pentagon operates with a, quote, 65-year-old acquisition process and 20th century operational concepts. So today, you've talked a lot about um, these outdated processes. I'm interested, where can the Defense Department update these processes? What does that look like? What is an updated Pentagon acquisition and innovation landscape look like? What do their processes look like? You know, it's it's very interesting. It's uh, uh, just reading these uh, new announcements again about uh, taking assault breaker. And uh, I forgot the name that uh, Secretary Hicks called it. I forget what the name of it is, but the thousand drone problem. I, I think that's a great sign of a DOD that's starting to wake up um, to perhaps there are better ways to solve the problem than just doing more of the same. And and it's impressive and and we should feel good that we're doing that. You know, the, the, the problem is, is that the, at least the mindset is that the DOD budget is a zero sum game, right? If you just look at the Navy's budget, it's about a quarter trillion dollars with, I think 2024 budget has 76 billion for procurement and, and uh, which include aircraft and, and uh, air wings and, and shipbuilding and, Columbia Boomers and Virginia class subs, et cetera. But that's that's not going to go to 500 billion if we decide we knew a need to have a completely different force redesign. So, you know, idea one is, is how do we engage private capital uh, at scale to do some of the things that um, that historically have been, been the purview of the DOD? And again, Starlink being a good example of somebody who did it anyway, not in control of the DOD, um, but I'll just give you a, Another random example is how do we encourage commercial companies to build 21st century shipyards that might be building thousands or tens of thousands of autonomous vehicles for both commercial and DOD use? How do we build other um, you know, constellations in low Earth orbit that maybe parallel Starlink or something else that are not funded by the DOD? So number one is how do we use private capital in a way that just didn't exist you know, not only 75 years ago, but didn't even exist 10 years ago. And, you know, it would probably take an economist or two inside the DOD, which are sorely lacking, to start thinking about is what kind of incentives does Congress need to give capital to build these things? In the Cold War, we did a couple of examples of that. The civilian reserve aircraft fleet was basically how do you use commercial aircraft in the time of a crisis to reconfigure them to move troops or freight or or whatever? The Jones Act was essentially the attempt to do that for shipping, which didn't quite work well. But 
but there are other models that we've done in the past that could do that. You know, the second is, um, and I'm, I'm glad to see it, we finally realized that uh, Ash Carter's idea about how to connect uh, commercial technology, the DOD, uh, he stood up the organization called the Defense Innovation Unit, and it went through version you know, 1.0 with Ross Shaw, version 2.0 with Mike Brown, and uh, you know now version 3.0 with Doug Beck, um, basically trying to take some of the advanced technology that's being built by startups and, and funneling them into the DOD. Yeah, I, I still think there's an impenis mismatch between you know, at a massive scale and what's going on with startup technology versus what the DOD will budget and deploy. Um, because the DOD has more demos than anyone in the planet, but it has a real problem in getting them in the hands of the warfighter. And, um, and I still don't think we have the right organizational design to do that. And the first test for me, uh, to be honest, is when you're in a crisis, you need to look around and say, are these the right people who know how to operate in a crisis at high speed versus people who know how to operate when we're not in a crisis? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, in peacetime, we have people know process and procedure and low risk and low tolerance for dissension and whatever and, and crazy ideas. In a crisis or wartime, we tend to appoint very different people, not completely throwing out all the old folks, but bringing in some radical new thinking. But if you look around today, I'd suggest we're essentially still appointing the same people we would have appointed 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, 20 years of industry experience in the primes, you know, 20 years of X or Y inside the DOD, then you get the same thinking and mindset. It's it's not that um, not that we have bad people or wrong people, but we have the wrong people for the right time. And so, you know, I think the new head of the DIU is a good example of maybe the right person at the right time. But, you know, 20% of the DOD leadership needs to look like that, not the one or two exceptions we're pointing at. And they need to be taking risks because, uh, you know, my observation inside the building is that, you know, well, the closer you are to Indo-PACOM, the more urgent you think these requests are. And the closer you are to the Pentagon, it seems to be business as usual in ter terms of things we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I want to dig a little bit into DIU and its recent reorganization because that is part of, obviously, the innovation ecosystem at the Pentagon. How can it be bigger? How can it be more? How do you see that role you know, can you kind of expand on it as you were uh, just talking about? Well, you know, again, the goal of um, DIU originally was to do what China, you know, Ash Carter, and I think it was 2015 or was it 2013, stood up DIU in the, in the spring reporting to him. And by the fall, China announced civil military fusion. And I think it was 2015 because in the last eight years, China's actually executed on it. I mean, the, Startups uh, now have party representatives, and they're focused on, you know, national security issues um, as well as commercial technology. At least the ones that have dual use, and they've made that a national priority. And the first thing we did was demote it down to R and E, no longer reported to the Secretary of Defense, and and basically stiff armed startups and anybody who wanted to actually sell into the DoD. Instead of having a high speed pipeline for deployment, we 
managed to do our best to make sure that none of these new entrants, I mean, became a, you know, a, I mean, think about what it took to have Andrew or, or Palantir or SpaceX become a, a semi-prime contractor. It took a billionaire to start each one of those companies. That's insane. But the, to me, the ultimate test is if you look at the DOD's MDAP list, that is the major defense acquisition programs, um, and say, how many of them are new entrants? <laughs> well, the answer is zero. Well, you know, if it were me, I'd be setting a goal that says, no, in the next five years, we're going to have 10 new entrants. And in the next 10 years, we're going to have at least 25% of that list are going to be new entrants. And if not, we're not doing this well. It can't be that there is nothing of interest inside an ecosystem that exists outside the, 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 the known world. And I, as I said, I think that goes back to the type of leadership we have. It's not that they're bad or wrong or, or, or dumb. They're actually quite smart and quite dedicated to the country, but they don't know what they don't know. It's a different world in the commercial technology world. It operates at different clock speed. It operates at, with different technologies and it can't wait years to get a first order. It's just the, it, 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 and again, if you had people who came out of that world, they would be fixing a system to actually, as I said, connect the two ecosystems in a way that China has. And we've just failed to do that at the highest level, because at the highest level, we don't have people with that, with that experience. You know, in World War II, the U.S. did something spectacularly unique, which we still operate on, and that is we stood up something called the OSR&D, which is the Office of Science Research and Development. It was an incredibly insane idea, which the Vannevar Bush went to President Roosevelt and said in 1940, look, the U.S. military has no idea what's going on outside their labs. I mean, there were exceptions in the Naval Research Lab and a couple others, um, but, but in whole, he said, you know, science, this is going to be a technology war. We are going to be in a war, and it will be a war of technology. And the military understands tanks and planes and guns, but doesn't understand technology. And he said, equally important, scientists have no clue what the military needs are. We don't really understand operational concepts. He didn't use those words, et cetera. And he proposed to Roosevelt, I mean, something today that you just kind of go, what? He said, listen, the military ought to build guns and tanks and planes but you want to have civilians build advanced weapon systems. And, and, and I propose, meaning Bush, we set up a whole set of individual divisions to, to develop radar and electronic warfare and rockets. And, you know, there's a physics problem that's worth funding and whatever. Um, and they created OSR&D, Roosevelt agreed. And basically, Bush took 10,000 university professors and their grad students, made them, kept them as civilians, and had weapon systems development occur in Harvard and MIT and Caltech, et cetera. And th these groups built the prototypes. Today, we would call them minimum viable products, and then had industry build them at scale. Western Electric, Bell Labs, you know, General Electric, built 24,000 jammers that... Um, electronic warfare jammers that went on bombers over occupied Europe. Radar sets uh, were prototyped at MIT and, and came out and were built by Western Electric, et cetera. This concept actually continued past World War II. It's basically for the first time ever, universities became 
federally funded for advanced weapon systems research and continued throughout the Cold War all the way to today. Um, and out of that, we created the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health. In 1950, we spun out the Atomic Energy Commission, then DARPA in 1958, and NASA in 58 as well. So the U.S. basically took advantage of an ecosystem that the DOD didn't own. That's the point. We did something incredibly radical and didn't report to the head of the Army or back then the head of the Navy. There was no SECDEF in, in World War II. Reported directly to the president. The equivalent today would be having Doug Beck and DIU not report to the SECDEF, but the president of the United States with a budget and, and the ability to take commercial technology and actually scale it and have industry build it and, and have the DOD integrated. That would be the equivalent of what we did in World War II. I'm not suggesting we do that, but I just want your listeners to remember what a radical approach that was. No one in World War II, no other country, whether it was Britain or Germany or Japan or, or Russia or Soviet Union at the time, did anything close to that. Um, and it turned out that was how we had our 20th century leadership in science and technology. It came out of that civilian you know, world of actually building advanced weapon systems for the military. And of course, the military kept their weapons labs and, and uh, it wasn't that they couldn't innovate, but civilians tended to do it at scale much faster and quicker than the military did. By the way, the physics problem got spun out of OSR&D when it required scale and industrial scale at the size that the country had never built and got the Corps of Engineers involved and gave it to the Army. And they called it the Manhattan Project. But for two years, it was run by Vannevar Bush before Oppenheimer got involved and Grove got involved. So I think there might be some parallel big thinking that we're just kind of missing about, you know, if we have an adversary who's starting with, well, everything we have, they're stealing, and then they're building on top of it, um, and they're using it asymmetrically to kind of basically negate every legacy system we have, you know, how do we not just catch up, but how do we out innovate them with the systems we have in place? You know, we, we have some huge advantages. We just don't literally don't take advantage of. I want to go back to this commercial ecosystem, which isn't even in the game at all. I mean, fractionally, they're in the game. Commercial capital, as I mentioned earlier, private equity at scale. We have a whole ton of opportunities that we just simply seem to lack the imagination and maybe experience to figure out how to take a whole of nation approach to deal with an adversary that's already taken a whole of nation approach. And we have the advantage if we would only use it. Well, to that end, the sort of lean methodology notions that certainly you're familiar with, how can government take advantage of that? Because it's not exactly known uh, for alacrity. Well, you know, um, one of the most amazing things, and so I'm going to answer your question with another long <laughs> soliloquy. The amazing things for me in DOD was General Berger's uh, Force Redesign 2030. You know, his staff and came up with a pretty radical notion, which started with a, a, just a simple set of observations, which said, Hey, remember all those World War II movies with the Marines hitting the beach and those LSTs and it looked great and whatever? We essentially have that same force, you know, with modern equipment and whatever and our our operational doctrines and our uh, uh, force design. It kind of looks the same, but more modern. 
And they asked, is that the problem we're facing? <laughs> the answer was no, we're not facing that problem. <laughs> we're facing a much different problem. And to be fair, they just didn't like say, let's get rid of ships and tanks and whatever. They said, let's run a series of war games and simulations and studies for a couple of years before they made a set of suggestions that says, look, we're not even looking at the problem correctly. And when we do look at the problem, that is, what's the state of the world and and what do we need to? And by the way, we're not the pacing folks anymore. The China's the pacing folks with islands in the South China Sea and everything they built on the parcel and, and Spratly reefs and other places. You know, like that's where the fight's going to be. What do we got to take it to them? And they looked around and said, well, we need to divest this equipment and we need to acquire these things and we need to come up with some new doctrine and new operational concepts and let's move with speed and urgency. And and I don't have to tell your listeners what a S show that ended up as being when everybody who did watch those World War II movies or were steeped in the last doctrine said, no, you know, I'm that's that's not right and gee if you do that for the south china sea what are we going to do in iran or gulf of formosa or other places we need to be all right things but i think Berger got it right at the high order bit which was let's step back and figure out are we still doing things that match the current threat or are we doing things because we want the world to be like when we used to own it we no longer own it, but you know, and again, I keep picking on Indo-PACOM because it's the most visible thing for me is that that used to be an American lake. You know, if you really just look at the publicly available data, you know, our current aircraft on carriers won't have the legs to spend much time. If you look at the range of an F-35 or F-18, if the fight's over Taiwan and their A2AD system, A2AD system as good as it we think it is, um, that's going to be a really interesting problem, getting manned aircraft into the battle and having them be able to loiter for a sufficient amount of time. And, and all those things, I think, are necessary for the Navy to start thinking about what's their equivalent of a force redesign. Yeah, so one of the other things, if you think about, again, I keep going back to Navy budget, quarter trillion dollars, 76 billion for procurement. And you know, you then go ask, well, what are the biggest line items in the Navy procurement budget, just as an example? And then you go, well, wait a minute, we have Columbia Boomers in there, right? Those SSBNs or ballistic missile submarines. I, I tend to glibly but seriously say, well, these are used once items, right? And if you use them once, we're all screwed and we're not going to be worried about anything else. Um uh, well, okay, well, what are the other things in the budget? Well, then the next biggest thing is the Virginia-class tax subs, and then Ford-class carriers, and then air wings, and F-35s, et cetera. So first of all, you look at the boomers, and you go, well, wait a minute, if that's the Navy's number one priority, that's distorting the procurement budget. Not that the country shouldn't be building boomers, but all of a sudden, if it's in the Navy's budget, and we think it's the number one priority, I mean, I don't think anybody other than the Navy should be running the boomers, but but gee, well, wait a minute, maybe we should have that in some other line items. So we, when we look at the Navy budget, we can actually say, how much are we spending on the conventional force? I guess that's point one. And then point two is, you know, we keep going through force redesign and thinking about whether is it, is it 298 ships or is it 350? To be honest, if you go back and think about the problem we're facing, 
it should probably be 25,000, right? And, and I'm just throwing that out there to make the point that it's not a thousand drones that Kath Hicks just talked about. And it's not a, you know, whether we have 11 or 12 carriers, it's what's the force redesign look like to match the threat that we already have, not the one we wished we had. And that's a much different conversation that people are having a real, and, and again, I use Berger as the example, that was a small piece of what the Navy needs to have as a very hard conversation. What force are we building for what problem do we think we need to solve in both Indo-PACOM and in the Indian Ocean and in other places that we face threats? And I think Congress has kept going back. This is the answer of a couple hundred ships might not be the right answer for a 21st century Navy. And let me let me be absolutely clear. It's not that I don't think we need carriers or boomers or attack subs or whatever, but if the number is measured in hundreds of ships, I don't think we got the message yet. I think the message is that there needs to be a budget and a force design that are measured in thousands or tens of thousands of things and not just shiny objects like Assault Breaker 2. And I don't mean to denigrate the um, massive amount of work and thinking that DARPA put in it, but but it's still a fraction of what we're spending on conventional forces. And, and the thinking ought to be at the same level that the, that the Marines put into, well, what is the state of the threat? And how do we project power when our adversaries have decided to negate our conventional ways of doing them? That's a long way of saying, I think we need a lot more thinking publicly and privately about how we're spending our money. Now, the, the not the bad news, but just it is what it is, is that Congress is coin-operated, meaning you insert coins and they'll vote. I mean, obviously, they all care about the country, but they also seem to care about getting reelected. And if you look at the major donors to the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, what a surprise. You know, there are the existing primes and everybody else. And and again, I don't mean to pick on Huntington Ingalls or general dynamics, but you know, if we told you tomorrow that like, well, instead of building these thousand foot ships, you now are 500 foot boomers, you're now building tens of thousands of autonomous things. You don't have the shipyards or the people or the architecture or the skill set to go do that. Those will probably be new entrants that you might acquire later. And in hindsight, you probably should have been funding on day one along with private equity. But that's a whole different architecture from the existing primes and contractors who over their dead body will decide that it's kind of like the, you know, the horseshoe suppliers and the cavalry and the horse suppliers and whatever in the 1920s when, you know, Patton was trying to get the army to move to tanks. <laughs> there was a whole set of, seriously, there were horse suppliers who were the major donors to Congress saying, we, no, we still need a cavalry. You know, the world's kind of changed and these changes happen if you're the incumbent, unfortunately, a lot slower than if you're the number two. You know, the best example is the Germans in pre-World War II. The French had much better tanks than the Germans did in 1940. The Germans practiced a lot with integrating radio and tactical air and what we would now call tactical air and, and, and had better operational concepts, which they proved in the Blitzkrieg. But the Germans had, the French had much better tanks. Um, and that Maginot line looks like a pretty good idea. I, I kind of feel like we might be in that position. I do want to end on just sort of a bird's eye view question, which it's actually two. 
Are we talking about a broader cultural conversation at the Pentagon, particularly when it's regarding innovation, turf wars, zero-sum budgets and the like? How can the Pentagon pivot to this unconventional future, particularly yeah. when it comes to the great power competition, as you've sort of talked about, you know, in, in DOPECOM? So, so, you know, one of the great things about being at Stanford is we're surrounded by like some amazing people. And so in our, in this class at Gordian Knott Center, uh, our technology innovation, great power competition class, um, the opening speaker is General Mattis and the closing speaker is Condi Rice and bookended between that are head of Indopaycom and the head of ONR and the students get exposed to a lot of stuff. Plus they have to get out of the building and physically go visit some of these places and work on hands-on projects. But in that, you know, the biggest eye opener for me, I think it was 2018 when Mattis came out with a national defense strategy and basically pivoted the entire country to the two plus three. I don't know if you remember, we take it for granted now, we were in the midst of fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda for a decade and or more, and he woke us up and said, look, guys, it's great power competition again. You know, we still need to think about non-nation states, but number one is China, and number two, it's Russia. And then we need to think about Iran and North Korea as major regional threats. And we need to think about ISIS and Al-Qaeda as well. Holy cow, what an eye-opener. And, and that was just a leadership change which filtered down to everything. Right. It started from the top. I think, you know, the DOD in the country and the commercial industry and private equity is looking for leadership with a the same articulate vision that says, look, we're going to get our rear end handed to us unless we engage in a whole of country effort. And when we do that, because our adversaries are. When we do that, we have more resources, more creativity, more smart people, more whatever, but it's not just the DOD. We have private capital, we have private industry, we have startups, we have scale-ups, we have whatever, and we've not put together an ecosystem you know, to do that as an integrated whole. And it's not that the folks inside the DOD are not waking up to that, but they don't have the decades of experience of actually working outside that building. So for that learning curve is both steep, and as I said, it's littered with incumbents, on, as you would imagine. It's not a surprise on the way to say, well, no. You know, my goal would to, to be tell all the incumbents, no, 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 the world's going to change, but I guarantee you we're going to make you as profitable as you are today. I don't want to put you out of business. The country can't afford Huntington Ingalls or GD to go out of business or whatever. We cannot afford to have that happen. So how do we incentivize a vision of what the world looks like with an integration of commercial and a whole new set of vendors and a whole new set of players and a whole of country approach. That's the leadership we're hoping we get that I think, to be honest, we lack. One with a vision past, how do we make these incremental improvements in the DOD? And I don't want to denigrate any of the things we've been doing. They've been wonderful steps. But I think they lack this. How do we tie these pieces together? We're seeing the Office of Strategic Capital starting in R&E and now reporting to the SECDEF as a piece of those players and trying to do that. We're seeing DIU and Doug Beck, and in fact, the House Armed Services Committee recommended a budget that's just mind-blowing. But still, you know, the Senate goes, nah, we're not interested. We'll see how that comes out of conference committee. But I think it requires higher-level leadership the NSC, the president, the secretary of defense, all getting online 
and saying, this is where the country needs to go. Here's how the DOD capital and the private industry work together to compete in, in, a, in a world where it's a whole of nation approach. So, Ross, that's my two cents. No, that sounds like a way forward that certainly looks forward as opposed to looking backward. And, and certainly the whole of nation approach is something that um, I know in previous conversations I've had with people about these kinds of things. I'm always a little taken aback by the lack of that. And certainly in previous, um, not just in the national security space, but broadly in the STEM space, without that whole of nation approach, it does seem like uh, there's a, let's say, slow down a little bit when it could be much more uh, unified going forward and, and getting things quickly done and, and effectively done. That's obviously not easy to to just snap your fingers and say make it happen, but it is certainly necessary. I agree. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com. 